0: I think we're also seeing a, a shift where a lot of people have checked the box to say, yes, I have DR, to a world where we're realizing if we don't have DR that works, my business is at stake, my job is at stake. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how
1: we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. Welcome back to our continuing series about data protection strategies using disaster recovery as a service, or DRaaS. I'm your host, Jeff Tunn. DRaaS itself is not new. It seems funny to say that, but it's been around for about 10 years or more. What is new is the ability to use public clouds like AWS or Azure for the replication target. Today, we are gonna talk about the advances that makes this thing a reality and a couple of real world examples of using DRAS to the cloud. For those who are weighing the decision of what target to use, we are also gonna discuss some of the points you should consider in your decision. I am joined by Adam Scamahorn. Adam is the product manager at Intervision responsible for, among other products, the DRAS product suite. Adam has been involved in DRAS almost since its inception. He started in the space as an engineer, which gives him a unique perspective as a product manager. Welcome to Status Go, Adam.
0: Thank you for having me, Jeff. I'm really happy to be here and I look forward to having this conversation. It's kind of fun
1: to be thinking about this conversation today, Adam, because you and I have worked together in a couple of different ways that I'm going to I'm going to touch on here in a minute. And I talked a little bit about your background already, but I'd love for you to share more about your career journey and what led you to your role as product manager in the data protection space.
0: Sure. So as you said, I did start my IT career as an engineer, and about 10 years ago, I started doing a lot of disaster recovery as a service-related activities. Of course, back then, most of the DR I dealt with relied heavily on storage replication technologies and required buying matching hardware for everything in production to be able to run your data center in that recovered state. I got to be involved with a lot of the improvements as things came along and software-defined DRAS helped build a lot of the first iterations of what's become the modern evolved disaster recovery as a service solution. As DRAS and resiliency overall evolved so has my career and I've gotten to use a lot of what I learned to help others architect and protect their individual environments and for the last couple years I've had the privilege to build and update solutions and provide protection at an even wider audience.
1: Well, as I mentioned, you and I have worked together. I've had the distinct privilege of working with you for almost 10 years, Mm -hmm. first as a client and then as a coworker at Blue Lock and then InterVision. And I tell the story of our DRAS journey that we went through quite often. In fact, we have a webcast series on data protection strategies in which I tell that story and that webcast series will be out sometime in Q3. You were a big part of that. I was the client, and you were one of the engineers that helped implement and provide the as-a-service. It's hard to imagine that this technology has now been around about 10 years. What changes in the DRAS space have you seen in that time?
0: Definitely. So, a lot's changed, obviously, in the last 10 years. And You know, I mentioned how we've gotten more hardware agnostic. And when I first started doing disaster recovery as a service, uh, the virtualization was really the big first change that that really made a big difference. And with virtualization, you didn't have to worry about where your machines were running on necessarily the, the compute side of things. You did still have to worry about the storage side of things. So what organizations were doing is they were duplicating their storage purchase. So if you had an enterprise-grade EMC storage array that all your machines were running on, you bought a second one and used that storage vendor's um, native replication to then replicate into another data center where you had purchased virtualization hardware that could run in a DR scenario or to some kind of a hosting provider that, that allowed you to utilize that storage in a colo scenario. That made a big change initially in not having to buy like-for-like servers, but then the next thing that happened was software came in and made the storage agnostic. So instead of having to buy the same enterprise-grade storage that I bought in my production data center, I could use software to capture what was actually happening on that storage and replicate it to whatever storage vendor I needed in a DR provider site. With software then taking that role, automation kind of came out of that. We started to see ways to automate virtual machine power on start order, making sure that all of your prerequisites for every machine coming on were in place. And then networking, probably the biggest complexity and the most often forgotten complexity to disaster recovery is making sure all the networking changes happen, whether that's IP addresses, DNS, and all of those things could be automated to bring up those workloads quicker and faster. And then with the advent of hyperscaled public cloud, moving that out of a second data center and into a lower cost cloud disaster recovery landing zone made a lot of sense for a lot of organizations. I can now replicate to incredibly cheap scaled storage and have the vastness of compute available to me when I need it in a disaster scenario, but not pay for anything powered on as we're doing disaster recovery to the cloud.
1: Now I've been in the disaster recovery space a little bit longer than you. I started in the space about 40 years ago, Uh uh, back when we had to transport tapes to an offsite data center to recover. But one of the things that I've seen in the last five years, and you touched on it just a little bit there in your response, is cloud. And one of the things that has happened is the ability to use public cloud. So what changed that enabled that technology?
0: Well, the same technologies that originally came out and became that software-defined replication between... Um, like-to-like hypervisors such as VMware to VMware or Hyper-V to Hyper-V began to build ways to basically convert machines into other hypervisor-compatible modes. So as things became more hybrid cloud, things became more um, compatible there, it became very, very possible to quickly and easily do those machine conversions as well as the software-defined migrations, definitely. Good question.
1: Yeah, I'd say one of the changes I've really seen in the last five years is the use of those uh, mega clouds, the AWS and the Azure as a target. It seems like people have been talking about it for five years, but now it's a reality. And when you and I were talking a few weeks ago, you told a couple of success stories. And I love sharing with our audience, with our listeners, real-life examples of how people use this technology to help protect their data. So could you share those stories with us, Adam?
0: Absolutely. So leveraging the cloud is a good way to protect from any disaster, and I've seen it employed to protect from hurricanes, power outages, human error, and all kinds of things. In the last five years, one in three companies have experienced some kind of a disaster, and 30% of those now are ransomware. Ransomware attacks are growing at an alarming rate, and we keep hearing all kinds of stories about massive ransoms and supply chain interruptions, mm-hmm. but, it, but I'm glad you asked that question because there are some more positive and just as exciting stories where clients have been able to come back and succeed where they haven't had to pay those ransoms. So the first client I wanna tell you about was hit with a ransomware attack that took down a section of their business that included retail financial transactions. And while their data was encrypted by the attack, they'd already put in place immutable backup solutions and a process to migrate to the cloud with future plans to implement DRAS. But as you know, Jeff, DR technology is often the best tool for cloud migration. So the client was actually already utilizing DR software with a cloud environment to bring the machines up and perform their migration. Because of the time that the ransomware had triggered, the client would have lost almost 24 hours of online retail sales if they had performed restores from their backups. So instead of using their backups, they worked with their migration provider, utilized the DR software to complete their migration. Choosing a point in time to recover from just before the ransomware encrypted the files, they were able to identify the attack type, clean it in an isolated safe environment, and then bring it up in their new cloud environment online. In this manner, they lost none of the retail sales from the previous day, and the only downtime they experienced on their public-facing site was just for late that evening when they were impacted by the attack. And instead of paying a ransom for the lost data, they completed a task that they had planned to do anyway, and they're now running their production in the cloud with a new DR site to keep them protected from similar risks in the future.
1: What what was that decision process like, Adam, as you talked with the client, and they were in this migration process, but obviously they weren't ready to go live yet, Uh, (laughs) and so they had a decision to make, right? So what was that like? How did they come to that decision?
0: Yeah, I think it was a pretty simple conversation. I got to hear about it directly from the people who had that phone call. And it was essentially, hey, we're restoring from our backups, but we're going to lose 24 hours of retail sales. Now, they didn't tell us how much money that was going to be, but at the end of the day, it was significant. Mm -hmm. And so they started looking at what other options were. And while they didn't have a fully baked disaster recovery plan, they did have their data replicated. And so the team that handled the migration is the same team that would have handled most of the disaster recovery as a service options. They simply said, hey, here's something else we can do, and they did it, and it worked.
1: (laughs) It shows you that the the
0: cloud migrations,
1: they're never easy, right? Right. I don't want to have our audience think that a cloud migration is easy, but they were far enough along.
0: They were. In that journey that they were able
1: to kind of flip that switch,
0: right? One of the things that goes into all disaster recovery and all migrations— is figuring out all the connections, figuring out all the networking, figuring out how the users are going to connect to the environment. This definitely would not have worked if they were not that far along in the migration plan to have those things already foundational. Yeah. So, yeah.
1: yeah. Well, and I can say from my own experience back in the day that we, while we didn't have a compelling event like a ransomware attack, we had gone with DRAS initially. And then decided we wanted to run our production in the cloud using an IaaS product, and used the same DRAS technology to replicate our production into a second data center and use that to run our operations. So the technology can work for both a data protection as well as migration into the cloud. So it's fantastic technology. Definitely. So Adam, tell us the other story because it's yeah. a little bit different than that one.
0: It is. It's a really cool situation because it kind of shows how flexible DRAS can be when things don't happen the way you expect, because you can test and you can test, but in a lot of situations, things are going to be unique. And so in this situation, the client was utilizing both on-premise backups and had a solid DRAS solution with a tested DR playbook. When the ransomware hit, it took out most of the client's VMware environment, but the client didn't See, it is that big a deal. They were able to actually utilize their backups, bring up most of the environment backup in their own data center. And once they were able to identify the attack, they were even able to put a process together to quickly clean the machines on their side as they restored from backups. But there was one problem. The client didn't have enough available storage in their production environment to restore the entire environment because they had to keep the original isolated machines for forensic research in their data center. So this is where disaster recovery as a service came to the rescue. The client's d service was able to spin up 40 terabytes of their file servers in about 15 minutes. And then they connected them back to the client's production data center so they could run in a hybrid cloud mode. The client ran in that hybrid mode for actually two weeks while they ran forensics on the attacked machines that were isolated back in their production environment. After those two weeks were up, they were able to clean off all that old data from the machines that were infected and then migrate the file servers back. So their cyber insurance actually paid for that cloud usage at a fraction of the cost of what a ransom would yeah. have cost them. And trust me, their insurance was much happier to pay a cloud <laughs> provider than they would have been to pay a criminal.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So this may be a question. Uh, I'm going to throw you a little curveball here, Adam, because it occurred to me while you were telling that story. Uh-huh. And if this is uh outside your knowledge or outside your expertise, don't hesitate to mention that. But you mentioned that they had to segregate or quarantine off their production environment for forensics. I think sometimes that runs counter to the IT professional who wants to get their systems up and running as quickly Mm -hmm. as possible, right? So what's the benefit or why do we counsel our clients, when we're talking to them about these instances to take the time to segregate off that environment for forensics? How does that help them?
0: Well, in a lot of situations, their cyber insurance is going to require it. Uh, So right off the bat, If they've got cyber insurance, which if you've got data that you're protecting with DRAS, you should probably have cyber insurance of some kind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's going to have requirements to be able to want to know how they got infected, what the attack vectors were, and all the details about what actually happened, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we build disaster recovery plans, we always work through all of the different possibilities about you know, what the client is wanting to protect themselves with, whether that is ransomware, natural disasters, human error, all of those things that I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. But we always want to have a plan in place, if forensics are needed, to not delete the original machines. Mm -hmm. And so we isolate those. We make sure that nothing can get off of them from a network standpoint, but that the data is still there so that you can do the research needed to make sure that, it, one, it doesn't happen again, but also your insurance company has the data that they
1: need. So that they can try to determine where it came from. I assume that that also helps with the cleansing process on the, on the other copy of the data, right?
0: It does. It does. Especially with ransomware, there's lots of different ways to clean ransomware off of machines, but identifying what it is and how it triggers is... Uh, is key. So there's two basic categories. Ransomware can either be a time bomb where it's just sitting and waiting to go off, or it can have a trigger. It can be waiting on some specific event to happen. And when that happens, that triggers it. And so with, you know, a lot of these stories and a lot of times when we see disaster recovery, save someone from ransomware, it's its ability to go back in time before things are encrypted isolate it, identify it, and then clean it. Because yeah. if you can't do that, just going back in time isn't going to save you. If the file is yeah. still there, you're ju- it's just going to trigger again, right? Yeah. yeah. So you've got to have all of those steps in place to make sure that you're able to clean that data.
1: Well, thanks for sharing those stories, Adam. I think it's always important to hear real life examples. I want to back up in the process a little bit. Some of our listeners are probably contemplating this new approach to disaster recovery. What are some of the drivers that you have seen lead people to DRAS?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. There are dozens of different drivers, but I think most of them, especially disaster recovery as a service to the cloud, can kind of be categorized in three big categories. And the first of that's total cost of ownership um, and the total cost of ownership reduction. So either you're setting DR up for the first time or you're doing a DR refresh, The cost of ownership when using the DRAS model and the cloud model provides significant savings over doing DR the traditional way. The second one is geographical diversity. So cloud providers can give clients access to world-class data centers all around the world. And as companies expand globally, they need someplace close enough to where they're at with low enough latency to effectively use their available bandwidth, but far enough away To provide an air gap of protection against potential disasters whether that be any of those things that i've mentioned and then the last big category is kind of the cloud first strategy so we hear from clients all the time who want to get out of the data center business altogether but they're worried about things like skill gap adoption rate migration costs resiliency products like disaster recovery as a service tested in the cloud is the best way to start this initiative you get to see how your workloads run in a cloud environment, and you get to hone the skill of your own IT staff with the cloud to build up the both the understanding and how to operate in that mode in an isolated planned test. And so that builds confidence, and it helps you plan for the future of running those workloads in the cloud.
1: When you were in the engineering team, Adam, and mm-hmm. you were guiding clients through these tests, did you use that as teaching moments with them as they were experiencing cloud? Was there that opportunity?
0: Yes, absolutely. Especially with testing those workloads in the cloud. Um, One of my favorite parts of being an engineer was showing others how to utilize the tools to help improve the way their environment run. And Jeff, you know this, you you know from Goodwill's migration to the cloud, seeing the way the workloads ran in that environment, how easy it was, how mm-hmm. how efficient it was, it became an easy story, and it's often an easy story to show those individuals working with you that the cloud is not a scary thing. It can be just as secure, just as powerful, um, if not more so, yeah. in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah,
1: excellent. Thanks. I just know because one of the roles that you had in the interim between engineering (laughs) and product management was uh, client education, right? So I know you're passionate about that. I am. And uh, I also know because we were on the receiving end of some of that education (laughs) uh, over the years, and it helped us make the decision. You mentioned uh, our experience. We found that our workloads actually ran better in a Mm -hmm. recovered state than they did in our data center that was down the hall, uh, because of the equipment that it was running on and all the various things that that go along with that. So we appreciated your guidance. And I think that's an important highlight for our listeners is that people go through these drivers and it's real easy to talk about total cost of ownership, geographic diversity, cloud-first strategy, but it's quite another to have lived that. And you've lived each one of those things. And I think that's an awesome testament to your career that you've been through a lot of that on both sides of the table. Now, there's also, we talked about this a little bit ago, Adam, in uh-huh. that uh, over the last, call it five years or so, the reality of using the hyperscale clouds or the public clouds, however you want to label them, has become a reality versus hosted clouds, typically Uh, As you were mentioning, the hosted clouds are similar hypervisors, whether it's VMware, Hyper-V, and now you can choose to use the public clouds. What are some of the decision factors that you're seeing clients weigh to decide where their target for the replication is going to be?
0: Yeah. So that cloud-first strategy kind of plays a part is if the client has a goal in mind of in the next five years i want to be in aws in the next five years i want to be in azure obviously it makes sense to start looking at doing your resiliency your disaster recovery your backups into that environment so you can do exactly what i was talking about with kind of that driver the other key though is speed so what's the total cost of my downtime how fast do i need to be recovered in and different cloud technologies can be faster than others um So whether that's the same hypervisor or different hypervisor is gonna make a difference in your speed to recovery. Mm -hmm. If I am running my production workloads in VMware and I'm converting those workloads into a different hyperscaled cloud hypervisor, it's going to take a little bit longer for every one of those machines to be converted. In most cases, it's a balancing act. What's more important, the cost or the speed? and figuring out what the direction is that i want to go there disaster recovery as a service providers also offer different tiers of hot warm or cold recovery capabilities with all of those destinations so there's a range of speed um whether you're changing hypervisors or not another thing that you want to look for in a solution with ransomware being such a large concern is immutability so the word gets thrown around a lot and all of the different technologies have different ways they approach that. But essentially it just means that you can't change the data. Once it's written, it's controlled by policy and it's read only. So that's hugely important for DR solutions that want to protect from ransomware as well.
1: And have you seen, you mentioned that there's different tiers. Yep. Basically hot, warm, cold, right? As you're looking at the speed recovery and the matrix on that is cost and speed. It is. Like it is a lot in IT, right? Yeah. You're it trading is. one for the other a lot of times. Have you seen customers mix targets? In other words, some of their yeah. workloads go to a hosted cloud because they're needed faster and some go to a hyperscale cloud?
0: Yeah. Great question. Um, Yeah. So a lot of times people will also mix destinations based off of what is available and what the tools are in those different cloud destinations. Mm -hmm. For instance, I've seen one client who utilizes a VMware to a private enterprise cloud VMware environment for their primary data center disaster recovery as a service. Mm -hmm. Um, But then they've got a VDI instance that they replicate and protect those desktop instances in AWS with AppStream because they don't pay anything essentially for all of those desktop licenses. If they were to run those in a traditional VMware Citrix environment, they would have to pay for all of those licenses to be up and running and ready. It's much more costly. Now the AppStream when it gets spun up is more expensive. You kind of think of it like a high deductible insurance plan, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But they pay very little when it's on standby. So in that instance, it made more sense for the client to run their production data center servers in a VMware powered environment that was much more private mm-hmm. than when it came to their VDI instances, that was a different decision. And so then those can be connected just like I kind of described with that second story in that hybrid cloud yeah. model where you build direct connections between those different clouds. So yeah, yeah. that's just one example I yeah. that kind of came to the top of my head, but yeah, there are lots of different reasons why you might run different workloads to different clouds. Yeah, that's cool. an
1: excellent example. And I know there's also companies that are using the the hyperscale clouds as kind of that, I'll call it compliance storage for some of their backups. And I know we're talking about uh, DRAS as a service, but backup sure. as a service comes to play uh, a little bit as well for those large amounts of data that you have to keep for compliance purposes, right?
0: Right. Yeah, there's no way buying your own storage or even using a service provider with storage in a colo is ever going to get as cheap as what uh, the big mega clouds are able to provide on their really cold archive storage capabilities. So if you've got requirements to do that, rolling those things off to archive in the cloud makes a lot of sense. And we, again, have very similar examples where clients will run maybe a, two months, six months in one cloud and then they will roll those off for longer storage storage in another cloud. Yeah. yep, That happens a lot.
1: And with the technologies, it's again, I hate to say that something's easy because I know there's a (laughs) lot of work that goes into it, um, but it's now standardized process, which makes it repeatable,
0: right? It is because the technologies have become so much more software defined and the automation is really click of the button, the solutions can get much more prescriptive. There's definitely not one fit for everyone, but when you look at what the needs are and when you look at where the solutions lie, it's definitely a lot easier to go in and say, hey, this is the best, smartest fit for the technologies that you're running to achieve the goals that you need to achieve.
1: Adam, you know, here on Status Go, we are all about action. we love to leave our listeners with a couple of things, concrete things that they can do tomorrow because they listened to us today. So what are a couple of things that our listeners can do?
0: Sure. So the first thing I'd say is test your existing DR solution. (laughs) Bring, You know, we hear from clients all the time of, I think I've got DR or uh, my data is replicated, but I've never run a test. So try and bring everything up and make sure your end users can utilize it. If you can't bring up your data center fully in a test, There's no way you're going to be able to do it when you're in a disaster state. Yeah. And while you look at your plan, make sure that you have plans for different types of disasters, whether that's natural disasters, human error, ransomware, myriad of other things. You want to be ready for how you're going to react differently in those different situations. Yeah. And then the second thing I'd say is do some research on cloud alternatives to how you do DR today. Do you have a solution that fits your cloud initiative as well as do you have a solution that fits your business requirements to recover?
1: I love those, and and I'm sure that we've got uh, maybe a couple of listeners that are that are kind of cringing when you say test, um, yeah. you know, because uh, a lot of times we're saying, "Oh yeah, we can recover," all the while our fingers are crossed behind our back, hoping we can recover. So I think that is great. Test, review your plan, and research cloud options because. The technology and the pricing today makes this a real advantage over more traditional disaster recovery.
0: It does. And I think we're also seeing a a shift where a lot of people have checked the box to say, Mm -hmm. yes, I have DR to a world where we're realizing if we don't have DR that works, um, my business is at stake. My job is at stake. Yeah, and so we've got to have DR that works.
1: Well, and your stat that you talked about earlier—that three fifths of organizations have experienced some kind of disaster—I bet if you pulled a lot of IT professionals, they wouldn't think that it was that high. Yeah, uh, and I that's, agree. Just, that's just stunning. So, yes, as the adage goes, it's not if, it's when.
0: Right? It is correct. Yeah.
1: yeah. Adam, I can't thank you enough for carving some time out of your day to, to talk with us. I've enjoyed working with you over the last 10 years, and I've enjoyed talking with you today. So thank you very much.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed myself.
1: To our listeners, if you have a question or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. This is Jeff Tun for Adam Scamahorn. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find InterVision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.